If you're still having your Bibles open to John chapter 10, we want to work our way through the first 21 verses of that chapter. Chapter 10 continues the debate between Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel and even uh, the Jews within the crowds of those who were following Jesus and listening to his words and watching his actions. And here in John chapter 10, Jesus speaks of himself as the good shepherd and his people as his sheep. It's a wonderful, beautiful metaphor. In fact, it really is the metaphor that was begun all the way back in the Old Testament, speaking of God the Father as the shepherd of his sheep. Of course, we know that most famous Psalm 23:1, the Lord is my shepherd. Speaking, of course, of uh, the Lord God, God the Father himself. And yet Jesus takes upon himself this metaphor that he is the shepherd of the sheep. And I suspect that's yet another way that the Jews are battling against him, especially the Jewish leaders, and they continue their condemnations of him, as we have just read in our scripture reading, regarding this continual debate, this dialogue between Jesus and the Jews. And what I want you to see, even as we finish John chapter 9 last Sunday, there is no break in the dialogue. Do you notice that? If you look at the end of chapter 9, verse 41, Jesus talks about blindness and sin or guilt. And he talks about the freedom from slavery because Jesus opens the eyes of the blind, spiritually speaking. And then without a break, even though we have chapter divisions in our Bible, there is no break. Jesus goes right into a continuing dialogue with these Jews. And we know that because of verse 19 of John 10. Look at it. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. That is to say that the man who was born blind in John chapter 9 and who has his sight restored is himself debating with the Jews and they de-synagogued him. They put him out. They were infuriated, these Pharisees, at his words. And they continued to dispute with him until they just desynagogued him. They, they threw him out. And Jesus, I'm sure, because of that act upon the part of these religious leaders, begins here in John 10.1 this dialogue that continues from chapter 9 and he goes right to the heart of the matter. I'm the true shepherd of the sheep and you are not. That's clearly the contrast that is being thought of here. And we'll get into that in a moment. But verse 19 shows us that John 9 and 10 go together because it says there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? 
Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. And then notice the tie-in with chapter 9. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? That's a specific reference to the man born blind in John chapter 9. And so this is another unit. It's a unit of thought. In fact, it even goes beyond verse 19 all the way through the very rest of the chapter. So in a sense, if we were to um, re-divide things, we would actually not put John 10 here, but we would say that this John 9 and John 10 is actually one chapter. It's one unit of thought. And it's, it's a part of what the Apostle John is doing as he writes this gospel to continue to show us the climactic debate, of course, going all the way to the cross. And here, with this debate of the man born blind, and now the debate with Jesus himself, to which they conclude he has a demon. He's insane. And others are divided because they're confused. They don't understand. How is it that you say he's demon-possessed and that he's a madman when the fact is no demon, at least from our vantage point, has ever opened the eyes of a man born blind? And so there is this division. There is this sense of the question, who is this man? And you remember I talked to you about this concept of blindness and I said to you that when Jesus comes onto the scene in Palestine and begins opening the eyes of the blind, just like the man born blind in John chapter 9 who said, never in the world's history have we seen a man do this. So no wonder he creates confusion on the part of so many of these people. You say, wait a minute, there shouldn't be any confusion. It should be very clear. Isaiah's prophecy says there's going to be one who comes, the Messiah himself, who will open the eyes of the blind. These are, these are well-meaning, well-versed Jews. They should have understood that. They should have responded. This obviously must be the Messiah. He must be the one who has come from the Father. And undoubtedly, my friends, there were a few Jews who did affirm just that. They were well-meaning Jews. And they did affirm the idea of a Jew who was that Messiah, who was to come. And they did follow Him. They did believe in Him. If there's any truth to the end of John chapter 10 when it says in verse 42, and many believed in Him there. Maybe there indeed were some believing Jews and undoubtedly there were. But what John does is that he keeps telling us over and over and over again, chapter after chapter after chapter, that the vast majority of these Jews, and especially the religious leaders, would have none of this, that Jesus is the Son of God, that He's the Messiah. In fact, as you can see, as we read in the latter part of John 10, they pronounce blasphemy upon Him, because He claimed to be the Son of God. You make yourself out to be God. And yet there's this this sense in the crowd. This man can't have a demon, can he? Because who opens the eyes of the blind? You remember when I shared with you last time in Matthew chapter 9, verses 27 to 30, 
and two blind men had their eyes opened, according to verse 30, by Jesus. And then, you remember, I tried to show you from Matthew, Matthew chapter 12, and uh, I couldn't find the right verse reference. Well, I found it. It is in Matthew chapter 12. Turn back with me to Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Matthew 12:22 Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute so he couldn't see and he couldn't hear he was brought to him this demon oppressed man who was both blind and mute was brought to Jesus and what does the text say and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that is Satan himself, that this man casts out demons. Jesus, of course, said, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, you think I have a demon because I give sight to the blind? Because I unstop the ears of a person who can't hear? Or because I bring demons out of that oppressed man? You you think that I'm doing that by the prince of demons, by Beelzebul? How can that happen? If that happens, then that means that Satan is attempting to cast out Satan. And that means his house is divided. And if his house is divided, then his house cannot stand. But if I do it by the Spirit of God, you better know that I'm not only not a demon or insane, but I am the Son of God. I am God come in the flesh. Matthew chapter 20, verse 29 all the way to verse 34. And it says in verse 34, And Jesus in pity touched their eyes, blind men, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed Him. Amazing. Where He went and where there were unsighted people, He had pity on them. And he could do something about it. You know, it's one thing for you and for me to say about someone who's lost their sight or maybe never had their sight at all. Boy, that's so, so sad. And we could have pity ourselves upon them. But it's one thing not only to have pity, but to restore the very sight that they don't have. And this is Jesus. And he loved doing that. Uh, the idea of having pity was, I'm saddened, but I'm constrained also by, by love and desire and my will and my purpose to restore the sight of those who have lost it or maybe never had it at all. In fact, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. Uh, 
Luke chapter 7. This is the... This is the regular, miraculous ministry of Jesus to cast out devils, to restore sight, to give hearing to the deaf. This is Jesus. This is who he is. Look in chapter 7, beginning in verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, John the Baptist, sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In that hour, verse 21, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. Oh, I love those words. Whether Jesus was walking along on the road and there were blind men, beggars on the side who were pleading with him, you're the son of David. You've come in David's line. If you can restore our sight, please do so. Have mercy upon us. And he would do it. And he bestowed sight on many who were blind. And he answered them, verse 22, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. Now listen to uh, the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Guess who's offended? These Jews, the very ones that he came to do those things for. And I know you and I, as we read the Gospel of John, or if you read Matthew and Mark and Luke, you read all these Gospel accounts and you read this time and time and time again, this disputation, uh, this denunciation of Jesus by especially the religious leaders and you and I are, are flummoxed, right? How can this be? It's so obvious to us. Well, it's so obvious to us because we have eyes to see. Because we have ears to hear. Because our eyes have been opened by Christ. Our ears have been unstopped. We see, we know, we understand. And we rejoice. And we also see a picture, especially in John's Gospel, of those who not only don't believe, but they also harangue against Jesus. They, they hurl their invectives against him. I mean, it's not only that they're just sitting on the sideline who are saying, I could uh, give or take this man. They're positively reacting angrily about him. And I think sometimes people miss this because they talk about how harsh Jesus seems to be at times when he speaks and rails himself against these religious leaders. Matthew 23, we'll look at it in a moment, where the entire chapter, if you have a red letter Bible, is all in red. Because it's the pronouncing of Jesus, seven woes against the scribes and the Pharisees. And sometimes people read that and they respond and say, well, that just seems so harsh. I thought Jesus was this loving and kind and gracious person, and that he is. 
But when you respond to his message and you're not blessed by him, but you are offended by him, then you have nothing to receive from him. Not pity, not love, but ultimate judgment. An ultimate pronouncement of woe, of damn, of damnation. And you know, this is, this is actually what's going on here in John 10. I mean, we read wonderful things here. Look at John 10 too. He is the shepherd of the sheep. That's a lovely metaphor. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. Verse 16, so there will be one flock. One shepherd. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I told you from the Old Testament, Psalm 23, 1. Great example. God the Father, the Lord is my shepherd. And even in Isaiah 40, verse 11. He, speaking of the Father, will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are young. And we read those precious words and we say, what a comfort to us. And for you as believers, it is a comfort. It is a joy. It is praise unto God. Because he is our good shepherd. He's the great shepherd of the sheep. He loves us. He cares for us. Notice some of these beautiful words here. Jesus says in verse 7, I'm the door of the sheep. I'm the gateway. Verse 14, I'm the good shepherd. I, I know my own and my own know me. And then this, I lay down my life for the sheep. That's what he says in verse 11, the good shepherd does. He lays down his life For the sheep. And they listen to my voice. Verse 16. The Father loves me because I lay down my life. Verse 17. I may take it up again. These are beautiful words. I love my sheep. I own them. I lay down my life for them. And for every one of us who is a true Christian, a genuine, bona fide, Believer in Jesus Christ. John 10 is so wonderful. His atoning sacrifice. I laid down my life for the sheep. And if you're like me, you you almost gasp in wonder and amazement that Jesus would give up his own life for your wretched life. My heinous life. And we are overwhelmed with gratitude. The shepherd of the sheep. He's the door. He opens the gateway to eternal life. 
That's, that's actually what he says in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We have this double protection. No one's ever going to be able to snatch you out of my hand, Jesus says, and the Father has his hands around my hands so that no one with double protection will ever be able to snatch you out of the double protection of the Father and the Son. These are beautiful words. Eternal life. Never to be relinquished. Never to be given up. Never to be destroyed. This is, this is the beautiful side of John 10. But... If you read this chapter carefully and if you bring it alongside chapter 9, that's actually all of these beautiful things are actually only the sidelight of the story. The actual point of John 10 is this debate between Jesus and the religious leaders. You say, how so? Well, notice the denunciations of Jesus himself. Look back at John 10.1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door. What's the door? Well, this probably was a reference to a homestead of those who had sheep. And there was probably right next to the house or fairly close to it, a fenced-off area where there were a a herd of sheep and they were safely sequestered there and there was someone who was hired to be a gatekeeper, a doorkeeper, and he then would do the bidding of the shepherd, whether the shepherd was the owner of the home or one that the owner hired as the shepherd of the sheep. And when he was ready to take the sheep out of that gated area, he, will te- he would tell the doorkeeper, open the gate. Or when they were bringing the sheep back in, they would safely sequester all of the sheep into their safety and security, and then he would tell the doorkeeper, close the door. And what Jesus is saying is something like this. He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. In other words, that's the only rightful person to be able to shepherd the sheep, to have the door open or have the door closed. He's in charge. He's the man. He does it and he does it well. And they love him and they follow him and they know his voice. And he gives them what they need. He gives them nourishment. He gives them sustenance. He allows them to be nurtured and cared for. He even says that he, he knows them by name. He may have even been able to give some of them nicknames based on their sheepish personality. But notice, this is negative here. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 1, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, then that man is a what? A thief and a robber. Those are not positive terms, my friends. 
You're talking about someone who's not supposed to be there. You're talking about someone who is there to do harm to the sheep. He's a thief and a robber. There may not even be that much difference in this. Two different ways of essentially describing the same kind of person. But the shepherd of the sheep, the real deal, the good guy, the one who should be there, the one the sheep know and love and care about because they know that he cares for them. He's the shepherd of the sheep and Jesus says, that's me. And then notice this, verse 3, to him the gatekeeper opens. Why? Because the gatekeeper as well hears that familiar voice. And he's, he's employed to not open the gate for just anybody and certainly not for a thief and a robber, and maybe he's the one who's actually tasked to stay there during the evening hours when there would be thieves and robbers who would want to come by and try to get through the gate or try to climb over and to try to take sheep in their thievery, in their robbing. And also, if you would notice there in verse 3, to him the gatekeeper, and then the word, the verb there is opens. Anoigo. And you know, that's the very word, anoigo, opens, that John the Apostle in writing this gospel has just referred to several times in chapter 9 about the opening of the eyes of the man born blind. (laughs) I don't think that's a mistake. I don't think that's coincidence. As this chapter unfolds, the opening of the gate for the shepherd of the sheep is the metaphor for those who follow his voice. So in John chapter 9, you have the opening of the eyes of the blind. He commands those eyes to be opened, anoigo, and they are opened. And he commands the gatekeeper to open the door, and it opens. And you know what? Chapter 9 is the great metaphor, spiritually speaking, of eyes that are blind and dark and they stumble and fall until Jesus opens them. And John chapter 10 is the opening of deaf ears because Jesus is the shepherd of the sheep and they know his voice and he opens their ears to only himself. That's what I think John is after here. That's what he's talking about. And if you add the concept of sight and hearing, you really have the two greatest things, I might say, we have in the senses of our human life. The ability to see and the ability to hear. Those are the two greatest virtues, as it were, from our physiology. The ability to see, see correctly, so as not to stumble, so as not to fall, and the ability to hear, to hear the right things, and to be able to follow the voice of the one who calls us. That's really what it is. John 9, Jesus is the great healer, giving sight to the blind. And John 10, Jesus is the good shepherd, giving voice to the hearing. He's both the Messiah who grants that people may see, John 9, 
And he's also, by the way, and we have to say it, if someone refuses to see, if they will not see the obvious, if they want to continue to be blinded to the reality of who Jesus is, then what's Jesus' response? What does he do? And the answer is, and this is a hard truth, my friends, the answer is, Jesus will condemn them judicially. He will pronounce a judgment upon them. And he will say about them, you think you see, but you don't see. And you are blind, and you shall be blind forever. Look back at chapter 9, verse 39. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see. What does he mean by that? Those who are blinded, but they know they're blinded. You see, that's the reality. If God is gracious to us, if he wants us to see truly what is our spiritual condition, then he will open our eyes to the truth by his regenerating power so that we know we're blind, we know we're stumbling, we know we're falling, we know we're lost, we know we have no hope for eternal life. Those who do not see may recognize their blindness and then they may see by the good grace of God. But the other is also and equally true. And those who see, that is, they think they see, They think they get it. They think they understand. And when they hear from Jesus, when they see his teaching, when they see his miracles, when they hear those things, they are blind to them. They don't hear them correctly. And what they do instead of being open to it, of the possibility of it, of responding to the little light that they have, they shut off whatever little light they have and they become impenetrable to the realities of spiritual life, of sight and of hearing. And they refuse to see. And when they refuse to see, Jesus says, you're blind. And we know that's exactly what's happening here in John 9.40. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, that is, if you really understood your condition and you were groping in the dark and you were falling and failing and you knew it about yourself, if you you were blind and if you asked me to restore your sight, I would do it by my grace and my mercy and my love and you wouldn't be blind anymore and your guilt would be removed. But now that you say, we see. And how does he know that they say that? He knows the interaction with the man born blind. They they bring him into a tribunal and they question him time after time after time. And he says, well now, isn't this interesting? I've told you over and over and over again what Jesus did. And he healed me of my blindness. And I'm telling you, no man in the history of the world has ever opened the eyes of the blind. Yet this man has done it. And you're asking me the question, who is he? Really? You're blind. And that's why Jesus says, Now that you say we see, your guilt remains. You say, how far does it get? I mean, how far does this blindness go? 
And we want, we want to be able to say in our hearts, every one of us, myself included, okay, well, some of us, uh, we believe at the beginning of our life, some of us uh, maybe in the middle portion of our life, some of us maybe even on our deathbed, and, and, and at some point, uh, all of us, including the ones we love, uh, we want them to believe and we pray that they'll believe and, and we're so thrilled when they do believe and then for others who seem even especially hard to the gospel, we're praying, we want them to believe and, and maybe it's true that there are some uh, like um, Hitler or uh, Mussolini or uh, Saddam Hussein or, or somebody like that who's just so bad off, uh, they're so gone that we can understand them being shut out forever. They're never going to get into the gate. They're not the sheep of the shepherd. Yeah, it's going to be true of them, but surely uh, nobody is as bad as those few are. So the vast majority of people, they're going to respond. Their eyes are going to be open. Their ears are going to be unstopped. And I can't imagine that these Pharisees aren't going to be among them. I mean, you mean to tell me, Lance, that, that they're not going to be in? I mean, they're so religious. They, 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 they seem to be reading their manuscripts a lot. They seem to know a lot. They, they tithe, they do this, they, they pray, they, they do a lot of things. How is it that this harsh Jesus is saying, you think you see, but you're blind? And how long shall that blindness be? Well, it's, it's right here and it's recorded and it's what he said right here. But, but they lived the rest of their lives, didn't they? And at some point, didn't they repent? Didn't they respond? Didn't they turn? Weren't their eyes given to them, spiritually speaking? Weren't their ears unstopped so that they could hear the truth? And Look at John, John chapter 12. This is hard truth, beloved. But this is what Scripture says. And I think it's saying it to even some of those who were in Jesus' own midst. John 12, verse 36, latter part. When Jesus had said these things, this is kind of like a summary statement of the first half of John's gospel. When he had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And then these awful words, verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Of course, you know that from Isaiah, latter part of 52 and all of 53. Verse 39, Therefore they could not believe For again, Isaiah said, in a different place, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, repent, and I would heal them. You say, wait a minute. Do you mean to say that he has specifically blinded their eyes so that they wouldn't see? He's hardened their hearts so that they wouldn't respond, so that they wouldn't repent and turn and be healed? That's what it says. 
And this is one of the most sad and misunderstood portions in all of Scripture and including the theology of reprobation. These are reprobates. These are God-haters. These are Christ-despisers. And you ask me the question, well, they might have lived during Jesus' time. Jesus was crucified. He was raised. He went to the Father in heaven. And these Pharisees, some of them, continued on in their lives. And surely at some point they believed. But according to this, in the very hearing of Jesus, in the very teaching of Jesus, in the very presentation of Jesus, in the very miracles of Jesus, in the very power of seeing Jesus face to face. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. And what's happening here in John 12 and what's hinted at in John chapter 10 is what we could call final judicial blindness. God brings the ultimate judgment upon them that no matter what happens and no matter how much truth and no matter how much they see and hear, they will not believe and so therefore judicially blinding them to the truth so that they will never believe. And I can hear it. I can hear it. That's not fair. That's not fair because everybody to their very dying breath ought to have an opportunity. And for you and me, we don't know exactly who these people are. We don't know them even if we're living around them. We don't know who's ultimately going to reject. We don't know who's ultimately going to respond. But there is the teaching of Scripture that says that there is a judicial blindness, a judicial hardening. Do you see that there in verse 40? Of John 12, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Remember the teaching about Pharaoh? The Bible says two things, and they're equally true, and they're not contradictory. Pharaoh hardened his heart. It says that, doesn't it? And then the Bible also says, and God hardened his heart. That's what's, that's what's happening here. Their eyes are blind by their own unbelief. Their hearts are hardened by their own hardening, their, their own callousness toward the Lord Jesus. Even though they saw Him, they saw His miracles, they saw His teaching. And so Jesus, through Isaiah's prophecy, says yes. And John the Apostle quotes it. Isaiah said these things, verse 41, because he saw his glory and spoke of him. He saw the glory of what Jesus could do to those who are blind and deaf and they think they see and they think they hear and they don't, but they get it because he opens their eyes because they have been elected from eternity past and they receive their sight and they hear for the first time in their lives the kind of spiritual truth that you and I rejoice in and that's electing grace from God. Because if it weren't for that electing grace, we'd all be hardened. We'd all be blind. We'd all refuse to hear the truth. And Isaiah saw this glory both of the electing grace of Jesus Christ and he also saw the judicial hardening of Jesus Christ upon the impenitent, the unrepentant. And he spoke of his glory. And then John fills out the rest of it. Verse 42, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. You say, oh, well, they believed in him. Notice the next word. But 
for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, just like the blind man's parents. They were worried about being desynagogued. And that was a greater worry to them than doing what was right, than believing in Christ regardless of the cost, regardless of the effect. So for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. That's not a believer. That's not, that's not a person who truly has his eyes open, who truly has his ears unstopped. Not at all. Not at all. And this is, this is what John is bringing to us in John chapter 10. He calls these very persons, these Jewish people and the Jewish leaders, especially thieves and robbers. He calls them strangers in verse 5 of John 10. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. You see what he's doing? He's contrasting. They know my voice. They hear my voice. And they respond to my voice, but your voice, they don't know. Because you're a thief, you're a robber, and you're a stranger. He says, I'm the door of the sheep, verse 7. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, verse 8. But the sheep did not listen to them. You see, you can't get around the idea that John 10 is beautiful and lovely for those of us who have ears to hear. For those of us who have eyes to see. But for those who say something like this, I don't believe in Christ. I don't believe he's the Messiah. I don't care what you tell me about what the Bible says. I don't care what John 10 says. I don't believe it. I want to live my own life. I want to do my own thing. I don't care if hell is forever and I'm there. Because... I will do what I want to do. Have you ever met anybody like that? I've talked to some people like that. Now, because of the politeness of society, you might not hear that often from some people. You might hear it from the most braggadocious, the most proud, the most arrogant. But I wonder how many people actually think that, even though they might be polite on the outside. I don't believe in Christ. I don't believe in following the Lordship of Christ. I hate you Christians. I hate the church. I hate what you stand for. I don't want it. I don't agree. I don't think he's the shepherd of the sheep. I don't think he's the door of the sheep. And Jesus says, if that's them, if that's who they are, then verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. I would give my life for these people. And I have and I will. I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 12. But, but this other guy, this thief, this robber, this stranger, he's a hired hand. He's a hireling. He's been hired to do a job and he's not faithful. He's not committed. He doesn't own the sheep. He's not a true shepherd. And when he sees the wolf coming, he leaves the sheep and he flees. And he allows the wolf to snatch the sheep and scatter them. 
And why? Why does he flee? Because he's a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. Verse 13. You know, that's, that's the mind of someone who's judicially hardened. I don't care. You're not going to tell me what to do. I do it my way. And if I am judged, so be it. So be it. Jesus says, verse 14, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Now, maybe that's a reference to the wonderful inclusion of the Gentiles, not just the Jews. And I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. You see, he's, he's the divine voice, and the true hearer the divine voice, and they respond, both Jew and Gentile. And and for this very reason, because I'm going to bring in this one flock made up of Jews and Gentiles, and I'm their one shepherd, the Father loves me because he sees me taking my own initiative to lay down my own life, and I will take it up again. I will resurrect myself. No one's going to take my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. I've received this authority from my Father. And you and I who believe, we we rejoice in this news. Yes, he lays down his life for the sheep. And he has the authority to lay it down. And he has the authority to raise it up again. And he was raised by his own authority, by the authority of the Father, by the authority of the Spirit. And he does that. And when you and I hear that, we we hear that voice and we say, oh, those are sweet words. I thank God for the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's my only hope. And yet there are some. I don't know how many. I don't know who they are. I just indiscriminately continue to preach the gospel to anyone who, who would listen. That's my job. But there are some who hear that same news. And according to verse 19, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. I mean, come on. A division? How about a party? How about a celebration? How about a coronation? That Jesus is who he said he is. Because he restores sight to the blind. He's he's the divine voice giver. He gives the Father a voice to the sheep. And they respond. And they hear. And they obey. And they're comforted. And they're treated well. And they're nourished. And they're given eternal life. And yet, there are some who hear the same message. And there's a division. A division that's so wide between the two groups that some of them say, instead of glory, hallelujah, let's throw a party, let, let's, let's throw down palm branches and say, hallelujah, the Messiah has come. Instead they say, not just, I don't agree with this, I don't affirm this, I don't think he really is the Messiah, I think he's one of those would-be Messiahs, and there have been a thousand of them, and he thinks he's opening the eyes of the blind, but I've got some kind of rational explanation for this. And, and this ears, 
the, the set of ears that people think are unstopped, where they're really hearing the true message and they're following this guy, I just think they're deluded. So here's my theory. You ready? He himself, this Jesus, has a demon. And the demon is actually working through him. That's what's really going on. It's the power of something, but it's not the power of God, and it's not in the person of Messiah. It's actually the power of Satan, and he's trying to delude all of you people into thinking that he really is the Messiah when he's not. He's actually deluding you, and it's actually done by Satan in him, behind him, through him. He's a demon. Or if that doesn't work for you, he's just certifiably insane. That's what they say. He has a demon and is insane. Maybe because of that word order, he's both. He's demonic and he's crazy. He's a madman. Others say, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? doesn't mean they believe. It just means, I'm not sure I'm ready to go that far like what you're saying. We'll have to hear more from this man. And Jesus says, you ask me again? I told you already. And that's the way John 10 finishes out. I've told you again and I've told you a thousand times and you won't believe. And why is that? Because you're not a part of my flock. You're not a part of my flock. Folks, that's as judicially a pronouncement as there can be. You're not a part of my flock. You don't know me. I don't know you. Remember those people in Matthew 7? But Lord, Lord... Did we not do all of these miracles? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And didn't we do this in your name? And didn't we perform many miracles in your name? And he says about them and to them, what? I don't know you. I don't have any relationship with you. You're not a part of my flock. Because if you were a part of my flock, you wouldn't say I have a demon. You wouldn't say I'm insane. You'd say, I'm going to follow that voice. Because God has given the Lord Jesus Christ power to speak the voice of truth and you don't listen in fact you say the opposite and they don't even stop here the rest of John 10 you're not only a demon and insane but you're blasphemous the ultimate indignity to a Jew you're at cross purposes with God himself you claim to be God you're dead wrong his response I and the father are one no wonder by the time we get to John 12 he says you think you see you don't see you think you hear you don't hear you think your heart is soft it isn't soft it's hard and I judicially declare that you are past the point of salvation now those are scary words but they are nonetheless true words and you say well why would the Bible kind of put it that way to 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 scare us, to, to present fear in us? Well, I suppose the answer might be yes, to an extent. There shouldn't really be anybody who hears the words and deeds and teachings of Jesus Christ who reject, not only to that level, but who should fear that this teaching either saves or damns. And I don't, be one of, I don't want to be one of those who are the damned. So in a sense, yes. But in another sense, the Bible is simply telling us this is the way it is. 
There are going to be some people who will be ultimately damned forever because they refused to believe and they said the very opposite of what is true about Jesus. He doesn't have a demon. He's not insane. He doesn't do this by the prince of demons. He does it by the power of God. And if you believe what you believe and if you believe what you believe to the extent that you believe it, you're gone forever. And even when there is a time for which you think you believe, you think you hear, you think you see, you think your heart is ready, you've been judged already because you've condemned the Son of God. I trust, I hope, I believe, I pray that there's not anybody here nor anybody in your sphere of influence who is in that place. You say, well, can I know? Can, can we have any clues? No. That's why we just indiscriminately continue to communicate the gospel. And when we communicate the gospel, we let God take care of the rest. You say, well, are there any of these today? I mean, these were in the very presence of Jesus. And that's a question I don't know. I don't know. Is there anyone here today who sinned like this, like they did in the very presence of Jesus? I don't know. But here's what I know. Jesus Christ commands everybody to repent and believe. Do you repent? Do you believe? I hope you do. Let's pray together. Father, this is hard truth. And we must ask because we don't know the hearts of men and women. So we do ask, do you see? Do you hear? Do you accept that Jesus can give sight to the blind? Not because he has some demon working through him not because he's a madman but because he truly represents the very power of God do you believe that do you hear his voice he's the shepherd do you hear his voice oh, I hope that you do in the words of John 10 he lays down his life for the sheep Hear his voice even now. Repent, turn, believe, trust, and respond in repentance and faith to the Good Shepherd. We pray in his name.